Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. On this episode, Mark Hemingway is with us of Real Clear Investigations. He's also an editor at The Federalist and the husband of the formidable Molly Hemingway, who is a fantastic author and writer in her own right. Mr. Mark, how are you doing, sir? How is America? No, huh. uh, you know, America's hanging on, but uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. You know, one thing that I know you get very focused in on is all the the school stuff. You've been on the board of a classical school for nearly 18 years. One, I want you to tell me about that, but then I I also want to ask about, you may have seen, you know, Biden is saying that it's cruel now to prevent gender transition surgery for kids. It's cruel to stop kids from getting surgery that is going to, Almost certainly ruin their lives. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. First, tell me, well, what is the, what is this classical school you've been on the board of for almost 20 years? Yeah, my, my church has had a school in some form or another for, you know, nearly 100 years, like a lot of Lutheran churches. Uh, um, but, you know, like I think a, a religious education in this country kind of suffered an identity crisis in the, you know, in the sort of the late 20th century. And, you know, our school had gotten very small. And we were deciding what to do with it. And, and you know, you know, the, the school population had gotten so low, like, do we close the school or something? So what we did, and this was, you know, gosh, 18, 20 years ago now, we basically doubled down on the religious emphasis of the school and we made it a classical school. Now, 20 years ago, it's kind of funny because, you know, talking about classical education, like like these days, you know, I talk to well-educated parents and they know exactly what classical education is. I mean, they ask me questions like, are you teaching Saxon or Singapore math? And they have like, you know, very you know, opinionated ideas about private schooling because they've had to because of the collapse of public education. But at the time we did this, we, we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we were taking a gamble. And, uh, you know, obviously with, you know, during the, the pandemic was sort of the culmination. Of this. I mean, I, you know, we have a, a very well-regarded classical religious school in a Washington DC suburb. And during the pandemic, when all the schools in Northern Virginia were closed, we had to take the application off the website at our school, which is crazy. And now like getting into private schools in DC in recent years has been absolute blood sport, which is just you know amazing to me because you look at how many people uh, in the DC area are in some way or another you know, responsible for destroying public education you know, via the Democratic Party or teachers unions or, or whatever it is. And, you know, they're living in an area where, you know, nobody with any money feels good about sending their kid to public school. Um, so, you know, education reform has got to be a, a much higher priority than it's been. You know, I think that um, one one constant reality of uh, the public school system, and I know there are people always they always play this game like we can't speak about this with any nuance or, or you know, it's always, oh, but, you know, I went to a great public school or there are great public schools near me. Okay, but there are also a lot of terrible public schools and they never get better. Uh, And the fact that the D.C. public, you're right next to Washington, D.C. You live right outside of D.C. I know where you guys are. uh, And I know that city pretty well, having lived there a couple of times. Um, They've spent, don't they spend something like in the $20,000 range per student? It's like the highest in the country 
and the public school system there is is horrible. I remember there was a Washington Post story. This was about a decade ago, and so I, I'm sure the figures are certainly much higher now. But Washington D.C. was spending about thirty thousand dollars per kid. Wow! And Washington, the Washington D.C. school district is, by several objective metrics, the worst school district in the in the country. I mean, it's like constantly competing with school districts in, in certain parts of New Jersey for like the absolute worst performance in terms of dropout rates and stuff like that. You know, it's it's also a situation where there have been a number of high profile cases in the last twenty years of like teachers union corruption, like actual embezzlement of like millions of dollars and things like that from um, uh, from the unions and schools in D.C. So I mean, it's just bad at every level. But what's also interesting, though, in this area in particular, is that just outside of D.C. and Northern Virginia, you know, in Loudoun County and Fairfax County, you had, um, uh, by some measure, some of the best public high schools in the nation. Fairfax County in particular, you know, was always upheld as a model. And what happened? Uh, a bunch of woke people got elected to the school board and like within a span of a few years, it's become a national news story what's happened with Loudoun County schools with the trans bathroom stuff. And then in Fairfax County, they had this, uh, you know, famous magnet school for science and technology um that thomas jefferson high school it's one you know was an ivy league feeder school and it was a public high school and the the school board has basically tried to destroy merit-based admission to it you had to uh test into it right but what happened was is because there were a ton of asian immigrants in the in the northern virginia i know again these are you know historically discriminated against immigrants were taking up all the spots in the stem schools so all of a sudden, they had to do away with the merit-based admission to the school, and this has been a big fight um, as that school gets, you know, fall, starts to fall apart. Um, there's a recent scandal where they didn't inform several students because what looks like because they were, you know, white or Asian that they had won national merit scholarships. You know, I mean, like they're just they're just waging war on people, and it's 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 absolutely astounding to me to watch this just implode, and 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 everyone's sort of standing around powerless, you know, to do anything about it. And I've been screaming for you know twenty plus years. Republicans need to make education reform a much bigger political priority. How do they do that? Well, for one thing, they need to start talking about it. Um, you know, obviously, there's you know a war on meritocracy in this country. Um, you know, right now, in advance, for in, in advance of, uh, of what looks like there's a potential for the Supreme Court to basically, you know, take away affirmative action uh, in this country. Uh, Ivy League schools even have announced they're no longer going to be using SAT scores. You know, and I'm sorry, but uh, SAT scores and standardized tests, look, we all have issues with them. You know, maybe we didn't enjoy them. But the fact of the matter is, is SAT scores, for instance, were a great equalizer. I mean, it was a, you know, there, if you were an Asian immigrant who spends, you know, I don't know, 20 hours a week or whatever outside of school working in your family restaurant, you don't have time to burnish your resume doing all these fancy extracurriculars that look good on an Ivy League school application. But if you go in and, you know, you pull a 1450 on the SAT, then you got a shot at getting in an Ivy League school. Well, they do away with the SAT. All of a sudden, what that's all it's going to do is empower, you know, the kids who have the money and time and resources to go out and burnish their resume with, you know, charity work and, you know, higher education consultants and all that other nonsense that, you know, is involved in getting schools these days. So that's like one issue right there. You know, let's talk about like, you know, why are we doing away with merit-based admission to, you know, like STEM school, STEM high schools now and uh, colleges, you know, just go out there and talk about that. I wonder as well, you know, you're, so you're on the board of this school, have been for a long time of, of your, it's the school attached to your Lutheran church. Are there parents who show up in any of the meetings? Now I know it's, it's a pre-selected group insofar as these are people that are choosing to go to this school and it's, you know, Christian affiliated, but right. is anyone showing up and saying, Hey, you know, I really think we need to expand 
gender ideology for the kids starting around the third grade. I mean, do you come up against that? I, I always I find it remarkable trying to figure out where does this begin? Because we know what happens in a lot of different schools across the country where they start the very sexualized books for young kids and the LGBTQ plus indoctrination stuff at a very young age. Obviously, in Florida, that caused a huge fight, a huge fight. Do you know, do you come across any parents who feel like there's not enough of the left wing stuff going on for the kids? Do you know what I mean? I mean, that they're not being LGBTQ plus friendly enough or something. There's stuff like that, but it's very much confined to the margins. Um, one reason why religious schools are good uh, for this sort of thing. And if I were, you know, a parent, I'd be out there looking for religious that cares about these issues. I'd be looking at religious schools is because most religious schools are actually controlled by the church. Um, in order to be on the board of the school or whatever, you also have to be a member of the church. And then, you know, that board ensures that nothing that the school does is going to go against the doctrine of the church. And if, if the church that's running the school is, you know, a solid, you know, uh, church with traditionally Christian, biblically centered beliefs, you're not going to encounter any of that stuff. Because the moment the parents, um, the parents uh, sort of raise these issues, then, you know, they can be, you know, pretty much dismissed because, you know, it's, it's, they don't have any sort of direct input in it. It's a private school. You can either choose to send your kids there or choose not to. Then the other thing that's happened simply is, like I said, you know, it's become basically with post-pandemic become blood sport in a lot of, you know, affluent areas to get your kids into a private school. Um, and the, de- the demand to get into private schools is really, really high. So that for once, you know, if you if you have a private school where there isn't a lot of pressure to get kids into the school and in fact, as is the case in a lot of private schools, you know, they're turning people away because they're waiting lists in every grade, then parents aren't in a position, whatever, to, so I should say, parents who have ideas contrary to what the school wants in terms of values, you know, are not in position to tell schools what to do, which is very different, obviously, than public schools where you know, have all these, you know, massive political factors going in uh, to things and, and it really sort of upsets things. Do you think that they, because you're, you're a Virginia resident, you, you mentioned Loudoun County as well. That was clearly yeah. a big part of Governor Yunkin's victory, right? The, this, the frustration right. with the schools because of COVID, but also the you know trans student uh, attacking the other student in the bathroom and, and the policies around a lot of this. Does that frustration continue? And, and do you think that that'll play a role in how Virginia goes just politically in general in 2024? I, I think it honestly, you know, um, um, continues because it very much affects the Northern Virginia um, area um, where there are a lot of affluent people um, and, and, a, and a huge population hub that determines a lot of the voting in the state, essentially. And so what happened in Virginia is really interesting and instructive and in why I think that Republicans need to go out there and talk about this a lot more, because, you know, it, it really worked for Youngkin. Basically, you have a situation where, yes, most of the residents in Northern Virginia are, you know, overwhelmingly and they vote overwhelmingly Democrat. But having said that, they're not like urban progressives. They're, you know, like, they, they tend to be much more moderate Democrats, unlike, say, the voters that live in D.C. or big cities. And the, these are people that, you know, care about certain things a great deal, you know. Um, and with the pandemic, basically two things happened. One is that D.C. completely fell apart as a city, like a lot of other urban centers. It, it just it had been falling apart for a while, but it got really, really bad. Now, like the homeless problem, all these other things are exploding in D.C. in ways that, have, that wasn't before. And so Youngkin is running, you know, post-pandemic, and the people in Northern Virginia are looking over the bridge, and they're seeing all this crime that they're worried about, you know, coming over into their neighborhoods. Um, and then the other thing was 
Virginia had one of the worst pandemic responses of any state in the nation. I mean, it basically just completely shut down schools for 18 months, you know, deferred to the teachers unions on everything. You know, these are high achieving parents with jobs and they were frustrated beyond belief with, you know, having to take care of their kids and, you know, having all the problems that come with doing school from home and seeing what their kids woke curriculum was like for the first time and all these other things. And, you know, I'm sorry, you know, with a lot of Democrats around the country, especially the affluent ones, if you do two things, you know, if you threaten their property values with crime and you, you know, ruin their kids ability to get into a top flight college because you're messing with their education, well, then God have mercy on your political soul. I mean, it's just such a losing message for Democrats across the board, you know, those two things. And that's how Youngkin won, basically, I think, messaging very effectively on both of those issues. But education in particular was just huge because you had all those, you know, national scandals. And Terry McAuliffe just took for granted that, uh, um, the, that the national press in Washington, D.C. was going to run interference for him. And uh, uh, it didn't work out that way because, you know, Youngkin was relentless about hammering the education issue. And it resonated with enough Northern Virginia voters to peel them off. It was a very effective strategy, as we saw. I want to ask you, speaking about how cities are doing, um, you are a native Portlander. Is that correct? Well, my mom, my Max, I'm a native or well, or, I grew oh, sorry, up in Oregon. Oregonian, Oregonian. Yeah, but my, my my mother is my mother grew up in Portland. I lived in Portland for a time. Um, I've got a ton of relatives growing there. Yeah, I want we want to talk Portland and what has happened to that city specifically in just a second. But first, I want to ask everybody who's listening, how's your uh, how's your energy level these days? Are you as fit and energetic as, say, our friend Governor Ron DeSantis? See that guy? He's lost like 20 pounds, man. He's doing chin-ups with one hand. Well, you could benefit, like a lot of folks out there, from chalk. It's as easy as getting dialed into the right supplements that have been helping so many men and women already in this audience thanks to chalk. I introduced you to their products last year. Here's how you spell it. C-H-O-Q. They make the most effective supplements that bring your energy levels back to optimum. They spent years looking for the right, helpful ingredients and organized them into products especially made for men and women. If you're looking for an answer that's a little more sophisticated than that fifth cup of coffee in the afternoon, check out Chalk's Male Vitality Stack or the Female Vitality Stack. Each one is formulated to help maximize your everyday potential. Their website is simple and easy to spell, Chalk, C-H-O-Q.com. Use my name, Buck, when you make your first purchase on the site and get 35% off any Chalk subscription for life. Not just your first purchase, for life, 35% off. Go to Chalk, C-H-O-Q.com. Use my name, Buck, when you're setting yourself up. You'll receive these products every month. They're really going to help you. You can cancel any time if you want to, but once you see all the benefits, you feel all the benefits, you're going to love your Chalk. Go to C-H-O-Q-Chalk.com, promo code Buck. All right, Portland, can I just tell you, I've, I've been to Portland once. It was 2010, and I remember thinking to myself, this city is amazing. It's beautiful. The food is great. It's got a really interesting vibe to it. Obviously, great coffee. Like, like so much going for it. It wasn't very expensive then either. It was starting to get more expensive, the city. But I remember also talking to people who were there. And I always like when I'm at a place for the first time. It's, they say, yeah, but you know, the downtown. And we got a lot of, a lot of vagrants. And it, was, it was just beginning to happen, right? And you could kind of see that the the Democrat left was becoming more assertive in its craziness. You know, and I think this really happened to Austin in the last, you know, five to seven years. You know, these cities go through all these people move there. They realize how great it is. But then also the Democrat reality starts to creep in more and more. What happened to Portland, man? I mean, it is it is hemorrhaging people. 
it had, I think in 2021, a thousand shootings, which some some crazy number, uh, which for a city of that size just means that there are areas where there are shootings going on all the time. What happened? What happened to why? Why isn't why aren't Oregonians up in arms? Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, the answer is Oregonians are up in arms, which is to say um, business owners in Portland and almost everyone outside of the the. Um, the, the, the city are, you know, incredibly frustrated by what's going on. And I'll sort of get to why that, why that is in a moment, in a moment. But basically what happened is one of my favorite Portland anecdotes is, is that, you know, starting in the late 1990s, Portland became known as a very trendy city. Um, and uh, as evidence of that, I like to cite that um, they did, they did mark, they did this elaborate market research. I remember reading about this in the New York times. They were trying to pinpoint what started the Paps blue ribbon revival in the 1990s, like why all of a sudden hipsters started drinking Paps Blue Ribbon. And uh, they found out that for whatever reason, it started as an organic trend in Portland, Oregon. Like, you know, it, like Portland was like hipster central. Like that's where people, you know, they had a great music scene. It had, you know, this burgeoning restaurant scene that you mentioned that was like really sort of flowering and it started in the late 1990s. And it became trendier and trendier until right around the time when you were there in 2010. That was the height of Portlandia fame. Remember the TV mm-hmm. show? about that or whatever that sort of like made fun made sort of gentle fun of right know, about they, they didn't want to eat the chicken in like the chicken kebab or whatever until they knew the chicken's name and what the chicken's hopes and dreams were and all i, I remember right. that from portlandia yeah right funny thing about that sketch was that portlandia was like it, it was the reality of portland at the um was so much actually crazier than the sort of sketch show there was like an actual uh, there was a local culinary competition right around the time. Uh, I want to say a year or two before the show aired with that sketch that you just described about, you know, meeting the heritage breed chickens, where there was a local culinary competition where two chefs got into a fight and one of them had a fractured tibia as a result with mug shots because um, one of them wasn't using locally sourced pork at some culinary competition. <laughs> I mean, like that's how crazy Portland was in terms of all that stuff. Um, but it was right around that time that like, because it became trendy in the nineties and people started moving there and moving there. And the situation with Oregon is it's like a lot of Western states kind of this way, but Oregon is kind of an extreme example of where Oregon has about 4 million people and it's, it's a large state, you know, it's like the size of Germany and it has 4 million people, but of the 4 million people, um, uh, just over about half those, the, the population lives in like two or three counties that make the Portland metro area. So what happens is, is that, once there's this you know, even greater influx of, of population into Portland, then all of a sudden, whatever is going on in that city, no matter how crazy um, it is, it's going to like basically ruin the politics of the entire state. And in this case, basically, it was a whole bunch of Californians and, you know, people from around the country that lived in urban environments that had gotten too expensive or, you know, whatever. They were just sick of dealing with, you know, the traffic and smog in L.A. or whatever it was. Um, all moved to Portland and they brought with them their progressive politics, thinking that, well, I can just have my progressive politics somewhere where it's cheaper and easier to live. And then almost immediately started voting for all these, you know, sort of radical ideas and progressive policies that, you know, basically completely ruined the city. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. 
and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Why is it the heartland of Antifa? Like, how did that happen? Because that's even a level beyond, you know, people say, oh, you know, they'll call them hippies. I'm like, these are not hippies. There's, no. These are people, there's a lot of white dudes with face and neck tattoos putting black balaclavas over their heads acting like they're fighting fascism by throwing rocks at cops and immigration you know enforcement officers and like bad stuff going on yeah that's actually a really interesting question um um so i don't you you know how familiar with the history of this sort of stuff you probably are more so than most people but you know the, the there's this issue of anarchism which was an actual sort of you know, prominent current in the late 19th century. I, I, um, I remember, well, the late 19th, I thought you were going to say the late 20th century when they did all that stuff in Seattle. Remember, it went, they went crazy and they shattered right. all the Starbucks windows, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, no, that was, that was Seattle too. It was the Pacific Northwest. But, but in the late 19th century, remember, was the, the, the person that assassinated was a McKinley, was an anarchist, yep. and there was all this anarchist violence um, in the early part of the 20th century. Well, for whatever reason, the anarchists were actually, you know, uh, there, was a, there was a strong sort of bunch of anarchist enclaves that were in the Pacific Northwest. So, I mean, it was always looming. I mean, like, there are towns in Washington State that exist to this day that were founded specifically as, like, anarchist, like, communes or whatever. Um, and so there was always that sort of current. And then you built on top of that with this sort of weird hippie um, uh, fringe uh, um, that was uh, always attracted to Pacific Northwest. You know, like <laughs> there was like some extreme ideology, you know, in terms of the hippies. There was a guy named John Zerzan that was uh, living in Eugene, Oregon, where I was going to school there in the mid-90s, and he had a radio show, right? And he was this anti-technology anarchist. He was a close associate of, uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber or whatever. And he was going around in Eugene, Oregon, when I was there in the mid nineties, basically like preaching to, you know, these gutter punks that were like homeless kids skateboarding on the streets and preaching anarchism to them. And when I was in high school, when I was in college, there were all these stories of like the, you know, these anarchists breaking into like city council meetings and all this other stuff and causing a ruckus and like all the local stuff in, in, in Eugene, Oregon, where the University of Oregon is. And then like three or four years after that, I turn on the television during the WTO riots and I look up and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's all the same gutter punks, you know, that I was seeing in, in Oregon, um, you know, uh, just a couple of years earlier. And so, I mean, I really think that there was, there was a sort of weird underground ideological um, uh, thing that, that had been happening for a long time in the state that sort of created this. Um, but, well, but it didn't really become a problem until it, it, it certainly grew around 2010 with the, um, with the, um, the Occupy Wall Street movement sort right. of gave some fuel to that. But what really happened, what really changed was all of a sudden, with all these progressive anti-cop politics, basically, there was no longer any political will to rein any of these people in. And all of a sudden, like Portland became like an Antifa theme park, basically, where these people could go out, you know, and do all this stuff and they would never be, um, you know, sort of uh, attacked or, you know, you know, going back 10 years ago, and the cops were afraid to do too much or else they'd be, you know, accused of attacking, you know, homeless kids. Um, never mind that they were basically violent. They were organizing themselves into terror cells. Um, and they were just going around like on random Wednesday nights, 
breaking the windows of restaurants. It was totally insane. And they just allowed this to, to continue to this day. I mean, you know, you may have seen this actually, Ted Wheeler, the mayor who I think it's tough. There's some really bad mayors, but certainly one of the worst mayors in America in terms of oh, the results. No um, and, and it's kind of funny to see him. I remember during the pandemic where he went down to talk to Antifa and they just started, you know, F bombs and, you know, you're the worst. They, 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 they despise him just like they despise everybody else because they're spiteful, angry little idiots um, who aren't accomplishing anything other than just destroying property and making people's lives, you know, more difficult and, and, and miserable, um, you know, the, the surrounding community. But what I think is interesting is that finally now Portland has started to have a little bit of a conversation about, hey, maybe we can't just have the whole downtown be an open air homeless shelter. Like maybe, maybe that's actually a bad idea. And Ted Wheeler has started to try to move in that direction. And there are there is still this this left wing vanguard there that is like that the city has been destroyed. And they're like, how dare you try to turn things around? They're still they're still pushing. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, as bad as Ted Wheeler is and he's horrendous. He very nearly lost the Democratic primary in the last election to a woman who was literally Antifa. It's like publicly declaring she was Antifa and he won by like a few percentage points over this woman. Um, I mean, so th- I mean, that's the political reality that you're, you're dealing with. But you're right. They don't make any distinctions between, say, you know, Ted Wheeler, the guy that, you know, constantly is attacking the police unions on their behalf and the overall, um, you know, sort of fascist structure, whatever that they're fighting. He's just part of it. But but part of the reason why, the, you know, they're able to do this is because they have a demonstrated history of pushing Ted Wheeler around. Uh, Portland has this, you know, uh, event, it's the City of Roses, they have a rose parade every year or whatever. And I was just, gosh, it was like, I want to say it was about four years ago. They, Ted Wheeler canceled like the entire rose parade because Antifa threatened violence against the parade anonymously, by the way. And the reason why they were threatening violence was because the Multnomah County Republicans wanted to march in the parade. Like, if he's going to cancel an entire parade because you sent him an anonymous threatening letter about this, why wouldn't you keep pushing it? I mean, he's just, you know, a a reed in the wind, you know, as far as, you know, uh, ending fascism in America. So, you know, why not push him until he breaks? It's also fascinating because in the case of Portland Antifa, you had people who were trying to burn down a federal courthouse who you could see were almost all white guys. There were some women, but but they were white and they were doing this in the name of BLM. And the, the whole thing just struck me as, oh, so they're just you just choose whatever cause suits the moment so that you can throw your Molotov cocktails and act like you're some kind of hero against fascism. Right. And they'd already burned like a, a, a police facility and a bunch of other stuff around town by the time that happened. And they, you know, they weren't even doing anything there. Wheeler was joining the, the protests um, and the national media was basically 100 percent behind it. Like, oh, well, this is just a peaceful protest with a few agitators. I mean, it was it was totally insane. And Seattle, um, Seattle's were, just just as bad. Right. Pretty much. I mean, that's I mean, Seattle had the Chaz or the chop or whatever they were calling yeah. it. Right. Capitol Hill zone. Are, are they turning things around? I just wonder. I, I haven't spent much time in the Pacific Northwest. I told you, I've really just been out there that one time. I went to Cannon Beach, which is beautiful, though, and it strikes me as it should be this great place, but you've got two cities that should be the jewels of the Pacific Northwest that are just turning into crappy places to spend uh, spend too much time, certainly in the downtowns. Oh, yeah, no. Right now, Seattle is actually, there was just a big story recently about um, uh, Seattle's facing a ton of lawsuits from business owners in the Chaz, um, as they should. 
basically they just completely surrendered law and order and you know left these business people and and people that lived in the area at, at the mercy of these you know like literal warlords you know running the city um so yeah they're still dealing with that amazon and amazon was going to occupy an entire skyscraper in downtown seattle and they just moved the whole project outside of the city because they weren't going to begin to to deal with that and you know you these things keep happening and yet somehow i i you know there isn't the political reform movement that you'd think would be happening. Um, uh, in the last uh, midterm, right, um, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, dumped millions of dollars into the candidacy of a tough on crime independent candidate, and then later switched to dumping millions of dollars in, in, into the Republican in the Oregon governor's race. And, she, and, and in, a, in a three-way race, the Republican came very close to winning, um, but ultimately didn't. And, and then they ended up with yet another like crazy progressive um, governor and Oregon's governor prior to that, Tina Kotek, I think, wait, no, Tina Kotek's the current um, governor. I, I can't remember. Was it Brown? Was Brown, yeah. Um, she, she had the lowest approval ratings of any governor in the country. And, for, and you still can't get rid of these you know, progressives. They just elected basically an acolyte of Brown, essentially, to run the state. Um, it's, it's like so far gone, I don't know what it's going to take to fix it. Part of the problem is, is that, you know, people, um, you know, all of the people that are sick of what's going on in Portland are just moving to Boise. <laughs> and this is, you know, I think a big warning for everyone else. Um, you know, Boise is the only big population anchor in, in Idaho. And, you know, 20 years, you know, 25 years ago, Boise was one of those provincial cities in America. Now there's it's got a tech sector and a microbrewery in every corner. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if Idaho isn't careful that that state goes the way of Oregon in another 20 years. Um, so people really need to be thinking hard about this. I think the good news is, is after people saw what happened to Portland and Austin in particular, um, people are a lot more wary about, you know, um, people moving into your state. Um, uh, you know, they don't just necessarily see it as an unalloyed economic good. They have to understand that there's a culture that's very much there worth preserving. And let me tell you, you know, as a third generation Oregonian, I am really, really sad. I love that state. I mean, it's gorgeous. I mean, it was a real privilege to grow up there in terms of like just the unreal natural beauty of the place. And not just that, like a wonderful local culture, you know, for years growing up, it was run by a bunch of liberal Rockefeller Republicans, but they're mostly libertarian, leave me alone types who did a really good job of managing competing interests. And more than that, they were just competent people. You know, they balanced budgets. They did the right thing. They were good on environmentalist issues in, in, in a very positive way that I unfortunately, I think the Republican Party is a little too captive to special interests on, um, you know, nationally. Um, it was just, it was, a, it was a good state to be from. And I was really, really proud of it. And like now you mentioned, oh, well, I'm from Oregon. People literally roll their eyes in your face because Portland is that bad. I mean, I, I've got whatever you people, I guarantee you, whatever you heard about Portland, it's worse. I mean, it, it's downtown is a really, really scary place. And it's not just downtown. All of the violence and all the Antifa and all the crazy homeless people, you know, yelling obscenities in the street corner that spread to basically the entire city. And anyone that tells you different is lying to you. Yes, you can live there. Yes, it's not always violent. You know, you can get around this. But like people that live there um, and say, well, it's not so bad. And well, they have Stockholm Syndrome. They don't know what like an actual functioning city looks yeah. like anymore. I mean, I was in I was in Baghdad for a while during the war and there were people who were going out and, you know, getting like milk and eggs, but it was bad, right? I mean, it's, you know, right. people are still living in these places that just bad things are happening. So, you know, it's nothing there. There are quiet there. You can find quiet in any place at any time if you look for it. But if there's too much of the other stuff going on, that's a real problem. I want to ask you about elections, by the way, and election security. Because um, I know you've done a lot of research into, well, 
the most important thing, which is how do we fix things for 2024 uh, instead of people just walking around screaming at me and others, we won. I look at them and I'm like, not not really. I, I don't know what else to say. Like, you know, we, we can sit around and talk. We, you can tell me that they cheated, and but we got to fix the cheating, not just stand here and, and shout that we won, right? I mean, it's like if the other team goes home with the trophy, you can say the ref fixed the game as much as you want, but you got to figure out how you're going to win the next game. Um, let's talk about that in a second, though. You know, there's no company out there more focused on delivering the goods you need for a great night's sleep than my pillow. The pillows, the mattress covers, the sheets, the Giza Dream sheets exclusively for my pillow are amazing. They're still in stock, by the way, even though they're at their lowest price ever. The sheets come in as low as $29.98 when you use my name, Buck, as the promo code. It's time to update your sheets. Got a couple pairs of them. Buy a Giza Dream sheets set right now with the world's best cotton, Giza. Cotton comes from a region of Egypt by the same name where incredibly soft cotton is grown. MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. You get eight weeks of every night sleeping on these sheets to make sure your, your purchase is a great one. You're going to love them. Go to MyPillow.com, click on Radio Listener Specials, check out this flash sale on the Giza Dream sheets. Remember to use my name as the promo code, Buck, or call 800-792-3269. That's 800-792-3269. Get some Giza Dream Sheets. All right, Mark, uh, the election in 2024 is going to be hard for Republicans to win in terms of processes, vote counting, and uh, tactics, unless we do what? How do we fix this thing? That's that's really tough, but I mean, there are two sort of basic things here I, I think need to um, be addressed. One is that um, I was somewhat heartened to see that Trump came out and sort of, you know, moderated his position on, on vote by mail. To be clear, I think vote by mail is terrible. It's obviously more rife for fraud than, than almost any other form of voting. And I, I'm not a fan of it. I wish we could all come together as a society, vote, you know, from sunup to sundown on a single day and know the results right away. I think that is the way that democracy should be run. But the fact of the matter is, is that's not the way it's been run for a long time. And even a lot of Republicans are really, you know, accustomed to vote by mail. Um, so Republicans need to come up with a strategy to sort of address that. So we don't have, you know, two months of Democratic organizers running around, you know, maximizing vote totals where Republicans are sitting back on their hands, as we saw in the last midterm, basically hoping that Republicans turn out big on election day to overwhelm that effort. Um, again, I'm not a fan of vote by mail. I think it's rife by fraud. But as a friend of mine put it, um, you can't have arms control unless both sides have nukes, right? And so until Republicans prove that they can sort of, you know, equalize the playing field in terms of, you know, organizing for vote by mail or whatever, it, they're not going to be in a good position or whatever to sort of um, push back against uh, a lot of these other sort of, you know, um, dodgy ways that they're trying to sort of expand the vote and open it up to the, open up the process to abuse. So that's one thing I think that like needs to happen. And the other thing is that uh, um, one of the things that came out um, when uh, I worked with my wife on her last book on election security issues um, called Rigged. Rigged. Yes. I have a copy of it. Uh, <laughs> um, and one of the things that really sort of shocked the heck out of me was, and I think most people don't even realize this, which was that there were some shenanigans in a uh, gubernatorial election in New Jersey in like the early 1980s. And um, a federal judge put the entire Republican Party under a consent decree, which basically meant they couldn't do any sort of um, election day uh, monitoring or other and all the traditional activities the party would do on election day. Um, and that federal judge literally um, 
he retired from the bench and he kept senior status. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a way for retired judges to sort of like stay active in the profession while actually being retired. And he kept senior status um, just for, for, for like decades, just to, um, just to um, keep this injunction in place, basically. Um, and th that injunction wasn't lifted until that judge died. And an Obama-appointed judge looked at what he had done as basically hamstring the Republican Party for 40 years um, and keep them from doing any election day, you know, monitoring and other activity. Um, and in 2020 was the first election where the Republican Party, since like, I think it was 1980 or 82, the Republican Party had, you know, the ability to go out there and send organizers out in the field or whatever and do poll watching and all that stuff that the party would normally do the first time in nearly 40 years. And so the party itself didn't have a lot of muscle memory in terms of like how to go about doing those things, having the trained lawyers out there that do that sort of thing. So I think what needs to happen now that like the Republican Party can go back and do this um, you know, we need people at the ground level, you know, we need party precinct people, you know, going in and volunteering to do the election day stuff. Um, we need the, and we, but we need the party apparatus to go in and, you know, make sure that there are people in place to like watch these things and prevent any sort of shenanigans that are going on. Because I, I guarantee there are shenanigans going on, making accusations about widespread fraud or anything like that. But people are very much abusing the process in, in all sorts of ways and getting away with it. And we need to be much more sort of vigilant. And that, you know, comes down to the listeners, you know, go volunteer. He is... Heminator on Twitter. Highly recommend you follow him. Mark Hemingway, everybody. And also look for his work on Real Clear Investigations and over at thefederalist.com. Mark, it has been an honor and a privilege, my friend. Thank you for being here with us. We hope you come back. Great to be on here. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.